Animals, a podcast about politics, culture and ideas from a conservative perspective. I'm your pontificator-in-chief, Jonathan Cole, and this week I'm pleased to say I'm not pontificating alone. I'm joined by one Professor Wayne Hudson. Now, you're probably thinking to yourself, who on earth is Wayne Hudson? I've never heard of him. Well, that's true, but I promise you one thing. After listening to this, you will never forget this guy. Who is Wayne? Well, that will take an entire episode in its own right to explain. Let's just say this. In my humble opinion, he is one of Australia's greatest and most unheralded intellects. He is an absolutely extraordinary man with extraordinary uh, learning. He describes himself as an intellectual historian and a critical social philosopher. He had a long career as an academic that began in Oxford and through twists and turns found its way to the uh, humble abode of Charles Sturt University where I work, in which that's how we came into contact. He's actually a research professor at the moment of the Centre for Public and Contextual Theology, which is the research centre for which I work. Now, I invited Wayne on the show because I had conceived of this episode that was a bit of a review of 2020, obviously an extraordinary year like none other in my 44 years of existence. I don't need to go over why that is, we all know. But of course, the conversation went uh, in a somewhat different direction, in a much better direction, a much deeper and profounder direction. We begin with China, but ultimately... The discussion is about the civilizational rise of China, the civilizational decline of America, and the consequences of both. Uh, We talk COVID, we talk other miscellaneous uh, matters, Australia, Australia, China, uh, you name it, we discuss it. So this week, I'm joined by Professor Wayne Hudson, and we're talking the rise and fall of great civilizations and the future of the global order. Cue jazz interlude. Wayne Hudson, welcome to The Political Animals. Very glad to be here. Now, in an episode in which we're going to review, examine, analyze some of the seminal developments of 2020, and there are certainly no shortage... Uh, I imagine many listeners would expect us to start at the obvious place, which is COVID and the pandemic, because that's the single thing that has probably affected most people most tangibly in the year. But I'd actually like to start with China, which, let's face it, is intimately connected to the pandemic story. But the reason I want to start with China is that I think when the dust settles on the pandemic, and it will settle, this pandemic will pass, it might not be this year, it might be next year, Um, I think we'll find that actually what happened in the Australia-China relationship, which was one of the most significant years in Australian international relations, I think, for decades, that I think has a potential to be of much more lasting significance, partly because of uh, what it says about the place of China in the world. And just for the benefit of our international listeners who might not be aware of uh, exactly what took place in 2020, Uh, The Australian government in April called for an independent investigation into the origins of the uh, COVID virus in Wuhan. Uh, The Chinese took exception to that and pretty much our relationship went straight into the toilet from there. And we've been punished in ever increasing ways in terms of trade and uh, rhetoric from China. Of course, there are some other aggravating issues that were bubbling beneath the surface before that, such as the foreign intervention legislation, which was, it seems to me, primarily targeted at China and indeed the first individual to be charged under that new piece of legislation is a dual China Chinese-Australian citizen down in Melbourne. And of course there's the Huawei issue, which is not unique to Australia, but um, in fact that was an issue back when I was working in intelligence. Back in the uh, earlier part of the last decade, Australia, like a number of countries on national security grounds, has disbarred Huawei from participating in Australia's 5G network. So a question I want to ask, a series of questions really is, what's going on in the Australia-China relationship? What does it say about the rise of China and its place in the world? Seems to support this idea that we're going to witness a much more assertive, perhaps aggressive China as its economic and military power, perhaps its civilizational power 
rises and what is its global significance? Um, a mutual friend and colleague of ours, Clive Hamilton, wrote an interesting, I thought a very good op-ed in the Australian yesterday or the day before. And uh, I think the words he used was that this uh, conflict between Australia and China, this test of wills where China is try trying to punish us into submission is of, he said, world historical uh, significance. So, I mean, I could ask a whole series of other <laughs> questions. But, uh, and in generally in, in uh, discussions like this, you should only ask one question, but I want to open up quite a wide uh, space for you to talk. And I should just say, finally, this is the, <laughs> this is, Wayne, Wayne is uh, smiling at me because he, he realizes this is a very long uh, preamble in. He's probably never listened to my podcast and he doesn't realize this is my, my whole shtick. But Wayne, you have been visiting China since the 1960s, I believe, and you have contacts in China. You know this country certainly more than your average uh, Australian, certainly more than your average intellectual. And so you, you do have some insight and I know you've done a lot of thinking about this and you have been watching this uh, rise of China a lot longer than uh, most intellectuals in Australia, it seems to me. So I just wanted to lay that out for listeners too. Now, now you may have the floor. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think the problem is not the number of questions you ask, which are so many, but the order in which we should answer them. And the problem is that people answer the questions in the wrong order. So starting out with Australia and China is the wrong place to start. And talking about China, as Australians do, and as Clive has done recently, is also the wrong thing to say. Because if you start with the idea of China, then you don't really know what you're talking about because uh, there is no China in the sense that that discourse assumes. And when we're talking about the policies of the Chinese Communist Party, we ought to be talking about the policies of the Chinese Communist Party. Calling that China mm. conflates everything with everything. Uh, it hides the fact that there's enormous conflict in China and different parts of the country speak different languages, there are many different interest groups, and you can't coagulate them around this magic term China. In the same way, if you're looking at Chinese history, well, that's great, but Chinese history, again, covers all kinds of entities, all kinds of ethnic uh, diversities. I mean, most people in America, like Australia, think that Beijing is a Chinese city. It's not. It's a Manchu city. Now, this level of error means that the whole discussion about China in Australia and in uh, the United States and in Britain is fatally flawed. And it's not much better when you go to the China experts, because while they know something about aspects of China, they know remarkably little about anything else. So I'd like to start in a rather odd place by saying that the key question is really how do we accommodate the rise of a major Asian power which is going to be more successful than Japan was and which has been a major Asian power before? Because the problem is not just that China's rising, but that China's coming back. Mm -hmm. And this is a country that has a civilizational delusional mindset. The, the truth of these civilizational claims is very limited, but they are widely accepted in a certain way. And so the return of China is the agenda, not the rise of China. And that's difficult for Australia because our people don't know the history of China. They don't know anything about what happened historically in any detail. People in America are equally badly informed at almost all levels. And so we're not in a good position to understand exactly what the issues are. I think talking about the trade conflict between Australia and China at the moment is important, of course. I agree with Clive about all of that. But you've got to be extremely careful because, again, it's not a conflict with peoples. Most Chinese people think Australia is terrific, they'd like to come and live here. The idea that we're some enemy of China has very little support in China. Uh, I doubt that any members of the Communist Party seriously think that. Uh, in the same way, the, the idea that uh, our trade with China is a, is a matter of great global significance, I think that's inflationary. I think Australians are inclined to over-exaggerate their importance in Asia. They also, of course, don't understand how Critically, they're often seen in Asia because Asians, of course, are polite people in public and do not describe you as fools when they think you are. So I think a good deal of what's happening in Australia is really just continual Australian self-worship, continual Australian isolationism, hidden as foreign policy, and continuing Australian ignorance about almost every single country in Asia. You can see that when you realise that Indonesia is 20 minutes from Darwin and our people know nothing about it. We invite no writers, we invite no musicians, and hardly anyone in Australia 
Certainly no one in the government could discuss in detail each of the major Indonesian languages, of which Bahasa is only one. Now here we begin to get a sense of enormous complexity, we can't resolve that all now. But what I'm saying in a very simplified form is that in cases of this kind you start with the world geopolitical situation. And you don't just look at the actor that's causing trouble, the Communist Party in China in this case perhaps, but you look at the whole changing interactions of power around the world. Because the Chinese state, which is run by the Chinese Communist Party at the moment, but which would still be the Chinese state if it wasn't, is seeing the need to overthrow an order the United States set up in its own interest and is run in its own interest. And that's what the Chinese are setting out to do. Uh, they don't see it, I think, as an attack on democracy, mm -hmm. but as creating a new global space in which there's more room for them. We in Australia are likely to get caught in that conflict, but we have to be much cleverer than we're being at the moment if we don't want to be caught. The idea that the uh, trade with China is collapsing is complete nonsense. Mm -hmm. the, act, the actual trade with China has gone up, I think, according to the paper yeah, this morning. I, I read that uh, as well. <laughs> yes. So you need to follow the actual figures in great detail. Whether the Chinese buy our wine or our iron ore is not the same issue. They buy the iron ore because they need to and eventually they will. Can I just interrupt just very briefly? It just, I just wondered, do you think part of the angst and anxiety this let's call it dispute this spat has caused for australia is we're just not used actually to a country punishing us or pushing back hard because we're, we've, we've kind of gotten away with being a quite a naive global actor because we don't yes. really have any serious enemies and we're just so shocked i think that's dead right there's a bit of exception to that with malaysia and indonesia who mm -hmm. at times have been pretty rude to australia because australia was again mm -hmm. so ignorant that it didn't understand the consequences of what it said for their country uh, i do think that and i also think it's uh, it's a mistake to concentrate, as the Australian press does, on the conflict with China and Australia, because China at the moment is being equally rude to almost mm -hmm. every country in mm -hmm. the world, and has been extremely rude also to Canada and also to the EU. They're about to sign a major trade deal with the EU, so it's important not to confuse the rudeness of the diplomats who are obeying orders from Beijing with the real economic policy, which mm -hmm. is being dictated really by people who know about economics for economic reasons. And so I would offer you a more conflictualist analysis, mm -hmm. saying that the press are a bad guide to what's happening in most things, including this, and that you need to see conflict between strata, interest groups within China as well as within Australia. You need to look at a global set of shifts. The most important idea, I think, for our listeners mm -hmm. is not the rise of China mm -hmm. and not the absurd idea that China is a totalitarian state. There have been no totalitarian states, not Russia, not Germany, not Italy, and not China. This is all nonsense invented by a Jewish friend of mine called Talmon, but it's totally false. These are societies of conflict. Mm -hmm. These are societies that haven't solved their main problems. Mm -hmm. The idea that they've uh, solved them by becoming a totalitarian state is simply counterfactually wrong. Uh, what is important, I think, to be clear is that we are seeing throughout the world at the moment, to our great surprise, the return of civilizational states. Mm -hmm. It's happening in Turkey, it's happening in Russia, it's happening in India, and it's happening in China. So then in all these cases, they've gone back to an historical model that we thought was entirely gone. We didn't expect the czarist foreign policy to return in Russia. It has. We didn't expect the rudeness and the arrogance of 19th century China to reappear in contemporary China. It has. So what we're seeing here is one of these quirks of history in which things from the past that we thought were gone become a kind of model for the future. Now, I think they only become a temporary model for the future. So I don't think that Russia will, in the end, succeed on its civilizational path as a Eurasian as opposed to a European state. I don't think China will be able to cling to its traditional hegemonies and policy of kowtow. I think that modernity will erupt in all of these cases despite governments at the moment that, if you like, are going for a different modernity that restores their past. Mm -hmm. That's very good. Can I just... Um, I want to pick up on this civilizational idea in a moment, but just something you said, I just want to backtrack momentarily to tie off something. You know, I, I don't dispute for a second the uh, widespread ignorance in Australia towards China. I don't think uh, anyone could dispute that, and I include myself in that that category but I wonder if we turn the dial to Chinese perceptions and understanding of Australia is there a similar level of I don't know if it's arrogance but misunderstanding the whole idea that we're just some US lackey without our own yes, will on yes. foreign policy are obviously we're not nearly as complex a society and a country and we don't have as complex a 
history and obviously we're a sort of middle power and I would say a lower middle power that to your point I think the um, the uh, illusion in Australia is that we're a kind of powerful middle power but I think we're a, we're a far agree. lower middle power I agree with that. Yes. <laughs> most people strongly yes. uh, think and uh, I first learned this when I, I did a couple of trips to India when I worked at the Office of National Assessments and what was fascinating to learn is that in the uh, Indian Foreign Ministry which was this kind of really strange 19th century colonial um, entity they ranked countries and Australia was in a category of countries that had a very one single very junior official looking after about 30 countries and the Australian diplomats were desperately trying to elevate us but they could not convince the Indians to see us as anything but a minor <laughs> country and I thought that was a real interesting wake-up call for me I in any the, event what, what's tell well I think the answer to your question reiterates exactly the same point again that there are all kinds of different social strata and different people and different interest groups and what they know about Australia will be entirely a matter of whether they have any contact with Australia, whether they're buying Australian products. Uh, people in Australia, China generally know nothing about Australian history. They have very little interest in this entity we're calling Australia. Uh, why would they? Uh, on the other hand, there are people who are spending a large part of their lives working on Australia. There are 60 centres of Australian studies in China. Wow. Uh, in each of those, there are people who, do, who spend a lot of their time studying Australia. They know a lot about the Australian novel. They know something about Indigenous people. They would know less about the economy, mm -hmm. less about the politics. Uh, ordinary people in China tend to be sympathetic to Australia because they've seen products in the supermarket mm -hmm. that they liked. Mm -hmm. And they know people who've been here as, as tourists. They come back and say it's wonderful and it's not racist. And so that gets around the Chinese impression is pretty good yeah. but you've got to remember that all the information that they're getting coming from the government is of course politically controlled yeah. and so they don't hear various things and what they do here uh, can be uh, somewhat strange by our standpoint so I think it's important again to see a great deal of complexity there's I wouldn't say there's a deep understanding of Australia in China no I don't think uh, at any level even the experts on China on Australia in China have limited knowledge it's mm -hmm. because they come here for a couple of years yeah. they don't they follow one aspect but only one aspect mm -hmm. they're, they're likely to know more about communist novelists in <laughs> Australia than they are about for example the role of British law yeah, yeah. Uh, and so things that are crucial to the real history of the country they know nothing about and the same is true of their relationship to America but the difference with America is that huge numbers of influential people have studied in America. Mm -hmm. They haven't studied in Australia. Some people have studied in Australia and some of those have gone to the top of the Chinese system but they run the risk of being overthrown on the grounds that their political views may not be the same as President mm -hmm. Xi. So even though there are people who understand you very well, yeah. they're often in inversely related to their influence. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now I said that we will uh circle back around to the civilizational aspect but I realize as you're talking there's a couple of other little points I'd like to hit along the along the way in that excellent little um exposition you gave us the just to go back to this you you, you differentiated at the outset I think very prudently between the communist party and the people of China and the various different strata mm. the different ethnic groups the different cultures the different interests so um if I understand what you were intimating, is do you see this really as a dispute between the Australian government and the Communist Party specifically? Is that the only entity with which we are actually in conflict at the moment? And if so, what does that mean in terms of how the Morrison government should well, that again is thread this needle between <laughs> not getting the Chinese people offside, which, yes. as you say, have a yes. have a yes. either benign yes. disinterest or a positive opinion. Yes. Yes. How do we deal with a kind of recalcitrant, to use a good, the, the term that Paul Keating used yes. to get us in trouble with Malaysia? Th well, there are, again, there are a lot of issues there. I'd like just to take two of them because they're helpful. The difficulty with talking about the Communist Party and China is that the Chinese Communist Party, for its own reasons, has a massive propaganda campaign to tell the Chinese people that they are China. Mm -hmm. And Chinese people will often say to you, someone is actually against China. And you say, no, they're just anti-communist. And then you see the Chinese person struggle. Mm -hmm. Because in China, there's no simple distinction between 
the actual organizations in the party. The party mm -hmm. infiltrates mm -hmm. the organizations. And the propaganda tells them that the party is China. So setting up the distinction that is most natural for us between the country and the political party is not as reliable in China as it would be uh, in, for example, France, where you could certainly say that a particular political party is not the Chinese state. But in China, the nature of the state and the party are, are not so easy to separate. Mm -hmm. And even in religious matters, this is a related problem because churches are being told, really, they have to be part of the Chinese system mm -hmm. and therefore there will be Communist Party people controlling them. Mm -hmm. So that's that's a difficult one. I haven't got a simple way of keeping that one sorted. Uh, the second issue, I think, you were interested the in. Government. Yes. Well, I mean, let, let me just break it a little bit wider. I mean, what, what do you think of the way the Morrison government has handled this conflict that's now, what, about eight months old, going on nine months? And what would your advice be to him in terms <laughs> of the way forward well, to the extent that one can know? Well, I mean, there are different issues out there. And one question is, why did Morrison decide to concentrate on the issue of Wuhan? And the answer would seem, one would suspect that that was a request from the American side and that he did this to gain some other advantage from the United States. And therefore, I don't think he did it out of personal conviction, certainly not in the interest of Australia. I think he did it out of foreign policy considerations. Whether that's so, I don't know, but I, I suspect... You don't think it could have been naivety, just the kind of faux pas? Well, he would have... Sort of, he that, would have think? sought advice, yeah, and okay. the advice he would have been given would not have been. It must to do have been that. at least a discussion. Yes, a, a thought yes. Process so, well, I don't think it. I don't think foreign policy people would have advised him to do that. So, I think there must have been countervailing considerations, and I think think they were in dealing probably on the American side. The handling of it has, has been at times maladroit because the Australian government still doesn't understand that you what you do is your business but what you say isn't. So mm -hmm. you have to either say nothing or to have platitudes that can be reported positively in the Chinese press. You don't attack them verbally because it will be translated into Chinese and of course they don't realise that. And if you say something that in English is perhaps even only slightly critical, it may sound outrageously rude when it goes into the Chinese language. There have been cases of that sort. Mm -hmm. So I think the Australians have been rather maladroit in the handling of them. I think the practical response has been much better. Yeah. I think they have understood the threats and the dangers and the need to be very firm. Yeah. I think all that's quite sound. I have some sympathy with a lot of what Clive says on that, I think. But in on the at a wider level, what Australia ought to do and it's not doing is that it should declare itself entirely sympathetic to the rise of Chinese civilization. Mm -hmm. And we should invite Chinese writers and Chinese opera singers and Chinese uh, poets and so on to Australia and put on festivals about it. Mm -hmm. The Chinese government might say no, but they would inevitably notice mm -hmm. that we were more than open to their cultural greatness. And I think there's a tendency in the international sphere for people who are terrified of the rise of China to express that in a way that implies that they don't understand mm -hmm. that this is a great civilization that once was very powerful and will be again. So we're going to have to live with the greatness of Chinese civilization. And in a way, we could start with that. Uh, this year, it is proposed in Brisbane to do a, a version of Wagner's Ring uh, put on with Chinese people and in the futuristic mode. I think that's mm -hmm. fabulous. Mm -hmm. So I would argue for strong cultural engagement mm -hmm. with China and positive material about Chinese art and literature. Our people could gain enormously by knowing that. Mm -hmm. They will handle the Chinese better. And they will understand that this is only partly a problem about the policies of President Xi. Mm -hmm. It's also partly about the return of a major world force to its former glory. Mm -hmm. And just as the British and French were extremely difficult to handle in their period of ascendancy, mm -hmm. if you weren't one of them, and of course we were rather insensitive to this because they were our lot, mm -hmm. this time it won't be our lot. And we're going to have to accept that they'll throw their weight around, that they may be extremely rude and they may be hard to handle. We have to handle them. Yeah. Uh I think this is actually a good segue, this point about um, the recrudescence of a once great civilization and the challenge for the West to recognize whatever it may think about the virtues or vices of Chinese opera or whatever, that actually some recognition at the cultural level will go a long way <laughs> to facilitating our interests when it comes to national security. I think that's right. Because yes. we are going to have to be pretty tough, it seems to me, on Chinese intelligence activity, its cyber offensive against Australia. And so there are, it seems, in my, in my opinion, 
tensions and disputes are unavoidable because of who we are. We are going to have to stand up at certain points. But what I hear you saying is yes, there's, there's a way to balance this that we're yes. not doing at the moment. Yes. Because I think, that, I mean, this whole idea of this civilizational framework, you're the, you're the first person I've heard actually speak in these terms about China. And it's interesting, when I was at the Office of National Assessments and the rise of China, that was the language. I mean, I can't tell you how many conferences and roundtables and, you know, Americans and Europeans streaming through every Asian country. This was all we talked about. This was the number one, number one issue. But that was very much framed around China's military and economic power, which is where I started being the good ONA boy uh, that I am. So I think what you're offering is a kind of entire. But paradigm. the other, the other level of it is that it's extremely important to engage with the general people through mm. pop music and through tourism. It's if you can get the tourists to come back, it would help mm. because every time a family goes back to a Chinese town or or a city, they say to their neighbours, "It was great. We really liked mm. it." And Chinese people are not stupid; they understand very yeah. well. And if you attack their government, they may become defensive. But if you don't attack their government, they may express concern about their government. Mm -hmm. and things the government says. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, it, it's important to recognise there is a nationalist element in the Chinese story. They have... Mm -hmm. uh, the party is using nationalism as the only form of cement. There's no other cement that they have available. They tried Confucianism. It didn't work. Mm -hmm. A Chinese cultural greatness doesn't really work mm -hmm. because although it is part of the ideology of everybody, most people have only very limited knowledge mm -hmm. of it. So uh, nationalism is part of the cement, so you've got to handle that yeah. as well. But if you, as with any nationalist movement, if you handle it really well, uh, you can neutralise the problem enormously. Mm -hmm. You begin by saying, well, it's a wonderful language and a wonderful literature, and could you please send the art? Yeah. And to your great surprise, they'll say yes. Here's a term. Art diplomacy, that could be the... Yes, and also popular. Popular music and tourism. Tourism mm -hmm. is not the same class because ordinary people from China go all over the world now on tourism mm -hmm. trips mm -hmm. and they come back and rave about the countries yeah, they've yeah, been to. Yeah. They absolutely rave about Western Europe. Yeah. And they complain too, but not about the things you might imagine. Yeah, I had, I had, I've had two experiences in recent years when it was possible to travel that really uh, left an impression on me at just... You can't go anywhere these days without running into throngs of Chinese yes, tourists. Yes. I actually went on a, yes. another intelligence trip to the Maldives of all places, and I caught a plane from Male, uh, the capital, to um, Sri Lanka. And the entire plane, I think I was the only non-Chinese person on the plane. The entire plane load that had just gone to the Maldives and were now continuing their tour <laughs> on um, Sri Lanka, and it was Sri Lankan Airways. And the other one was that, as you know, I've been visiting Greece since the late 90s. And for the first time when I was well, there recently, I noticed a really visible Chinese presence. Yeah. I, I, 20 years ago, I barely saw any Asian They're all over Moscow too. At all. Everywhere. Uh, so they are great travelers. But the civil, what, what I'm working towards is, it seems to me this is a good place to bring in the West and America because... If the way to understand uh, the rise of China is really through this civilizational framework, then it seems to me at the same time, this other civilizational paradigm, so-called, let's just park all the complexities of this notion of the West as a civilization. If we just use it as a heuristic, if nothing less, um, you know, the, the talk within the West is all of decline and decadence and implosion and, and death and doom and, and apocalypse. And, Let's take the pandemic and just contrast the Chinese facts and figures with the US. And that in itself tells a tale. Let's assume that the statistics are reliable, but even if they're a bit fuzzy around the edges, sure, sure. I mean, you're looking at what, over 360,000 deaths in the US, I think it's something like over 22 million infected from a, virus, from a pandemic that began in China. And it has relatively, I think, deaths in the maybe 20,000, 30,000 and cases far, far lower. And of course, it's got a vastly bigger population. So you can't do the comparison uh, per head of population. America comes out worse. Now, I, I wonder what, and of course, we've seen, what did we see last year? We saw cities burning. We've just seen the insurrection at the Capitol building. We've seen the turbulent and heady days of Trump. We've seen polarization. We've seen the um, woeful and inadequate response of what for Americans have been telling themselves is the greatest healthcare system on the planet. It is, it is sort of being um, exposed for the, 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 the nudity that it is. So what do we make of these two contrasting stories? And what do you think people are thinking in Beijing when they look at America and 
do you think they buy into the the Western narrative, its own self narrative of decline? Do you think that yes, I think that, makes I think, them think they're destined to rule the world? Well, it, it, again, it depends on who and what and different strata and different types of people, obviously. But people who are following American politics, and we're talking now about a rather restricted group of people, uh, will probably be buying into the idea that the US is declining. Uh, some of them may even make Roman civilizational metaphors. Mm-hmm. Uh, highly educated Chinese know a lot about Rome somewhat to the surprise of Western mm-hmm. people. Uh, they are sensitive to this civilizational aspect. Mm-hmm. I think they do see the US as... Can I, can I just, mm-hmm. just say, is this civilizational paradigm the Chinese paradigm? Is that the kind of language they would use too about their own... No, uh, well, it, it's a hard question because they, they use some of this in certain contexts. I don't know what the parallel... It's a bit like it's a bit like a bit like people in Greece suddenly saying uh, Plato and Solon and oh, the importance okay. of Greek. There's a mythological side of it that is invoked at times. Mm-hmm. The number of people who know about it in reality and detail is very okay. small. So it's again a, a kind of misshaped thing. Yeah. Uh, I think that the, the problem is that the United States at the moment has no way of analysing why it's failing. Mm-hmm. It has got the wrong model for understanding all of its main problems mm-hmm. because it has not been able to understand the basic principles of political economy. The Americans moved from political economy, which I think, I'm not talking about Marxism now, but, but a general approach to economics that looks at how social and economic and political things intersect They move from that to this idea that you can have an economic science using quasi-physical models. Mm -hmm. The result of this was an economic science that doesn't monitor the collapse of your social formation, that doesn't really fully integrate the fact that you've immeasurated the working class and the lower middle class. And so the US has got no proper way of understanding what has happened because its economics won't do it. And politically, its its language is almost entirely delusional. Mm -hmm. American political philosophers talk about justice. They go into deductive arguments and different theories of justice. They have no actual operational way of thinking that would enable them to organize a just society. Mm -hmm. They make no attempt to organize a just society. Uh, There will now be revisions of that. are people on the left who talk about justice and, and church people talk about the common good, but the mechanisms for achieving it aren't there in the US. And that's a parallel as we both know with Australia, where it's just done much better because we have concrete practical things that are not even politically controversial that give you these just results, like compulsory voting, for example. There are many other things. Uh, a, a decent healthcare system is positive in every way, including economically. But the US lacks a political discourse that talks real. It has no proper economic analysis because it has a pseudoscience called economics. The best book on that, if anyone's interested, is from Princeton, written by an American. So it's not that good Americans don't understand this, they do. But the general culture has fallen into idiotal thinking about politics and economics, and they haven't, even on the race question, there's no proper analysis of that in the United States. And that's where the critical race theory and all this stuff helps in one way and hurts in another. Because what you need is not a blame game, but a serious analysis of why it's the first time that a black man is going to be representing the South in the Senate. Mm. Now, why has this happened? It wasn't anyone's intention. I'm sure that there are thousands of white people in the South who wouldn't be hostile in principle to something like this. So you've got to find the real causes. Mm -hmm. And I think in the China relationship, again, it's a matter of getting past the rhetoric to the real causes. The real causes of the problem the West has with China are partly the rise of a, of a country that was put low, partly they're the particular policies of President Xi, which are opposed by many people in China mm-hmm. and which have all kinds of problematic features. I don't think anyone doubts that. Uh, partly it's a failure of the West to think global politics in realist terms, Western people talk political bunk. Mm-hmm. They talk about the global order when they mean an order that is biased to them, set up by them. And they do this in other contexts. They talk about human rights. Well, that's great. But you have to realize that if you condemn one country for human rights and don't yourself notice what you've done in Guatemala Bay and elsewhere, well, you're not going to be taken seriously by any rational person. So I think we need a a major reform in the United States, in the university system, to get a realist politics and a realist sociology, and I would add a realist legal thought. Because another problem in the US, and this is the country with the greatest legal system and the worst legal system in the world, because 
ordinary people can't afford to use it. Mm. And people like Trump can and use it to prevent democracy and truth. Mm. So you have to reform the law. But you got into this mess by falling into abstract legalism. Mm. Again, American lawyers don't talk what a particular law does to the actual poor in a particular town. Mm. They talk in abstract legal terms. Mm -hmm. You have enormous numbers of people trained in the US for litigation. Mm. I'd be inclined to think that litigation should be made illegal. <laughs> I don't think there's anything to be said for litigation. What you need is a proper critical philosophy of law that looks at how law affects actual people on the ground. Mm. And if it isn't helping them, you need to change the law. Yeah. Well, where to from there? <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> what? Sorry. Um, no, no, no. And we have no, these problems too. Let me emphasize to our American listeners that Australia has the same, not as bad as the US, but we also have this legalistic tendency. Yeah, yeah. And, and I'm originally a lawyer, so I'm blaming myself. Oh, yeah. I mean, we should just uh, stipulate that whilst uh, Australia, when you and I, I think, are on a uni unity ticket when it comes to compulsory voting and uh, a depoliticized or a political legal system, judiciary. Uh, you know, Australia has certain virtues that are noticeably virtues by their comparison to the US. But of course, we have our own distinct pathologies. Absolutely, yes. Uh, our own vices where... America and we failed has. outrageously in the Northern Territory with our Indigenous people. I mean, we can produce hundreds and hundreds of cases of total policy failure by both political parties and by all Australian governments. So that points you back to the deeper point. It isn't that the politicians fail, it's there's something wrong with the way you're thinking politics. Yeah, yeah. And I'll yeah. just name one other. And I know, you know, there are, there are conservatives that might take exception to this, but I, I stand by this, that if you look at the universities, you know, I'm just going to forget the whole notion that they lean left or they've been captured by woke radicals. But the, the best universities in America are financially far sounder than Australian and yes. do produce yes. far better research and have much better libraries. Much better times libraries. Better. Hundred times better. And don't get me wrong, I think that there's virtue and vice on both sides course, here because our education is affordable. Our higher education is affordable, which is is a plus. But it has led to a kind of dirt, an intellectual dearth in Australia. I yes. think you've felt this yourself, yes. Wayne, because you are, in my humble opinion, one of the greatest minds in this country. And yet it's really hard to get any traction or a platform here. Whereas if you're, if you were at Princeton, you'd, yes. you'd be on TV every other day. Absolutely. You could well, you know be this publishing in the newspaper. You know, I People, go to New York once a year and they yeah. put it on the TV. Yeah. 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 Um, just can't just go back to this civilizational, the paradigm. I mean, mm. you've, you've just made a sort of, <laughs> you've, you've sort of covered all bases with the, decline of America and point to some of the things that are wrong and I don't really feel the need to dispute that and I think you don't even need to convince a lot of American no, sure. listeners potentially that there's a problem with their society there might be a debate about the causes and the uh, solutions but I think hardly anyone in America in fact including left and right I mean both think there's a serious serious problem part of the clash is that they think Can it's I just the other side is the problem. say one point there that is very perhaps helpful to everyone is that no one in the states at the moment is making the point that American civilization should be renewed okay that's, you that's see? This is because where I want to go. there you bring the right and the left together yeah. because people who are critical of the woke movement really are, are attempting to say, we've got to have a civilization here and we've got some outstanding features and we shouldn't run them down. And people on the left don't really reject that either. They are saying, but you've got some bits in that civilizational model that should have changed. Mm -hmm. Now, the civilizational model is helpful for the US too, because then you can see that it was once much stronger than it is now. Uh, it was in some ways stronger in the Confederacy than it is mm -hmm. now. Mm -hmm. uh, the United States has run down its own cultural capital. Mm -hmm. It should rebuild it. Mm -hmm. On this one, you could almost accuse me of having half a, uh, an element of sympathy with Trump. I don't like Trump, obviously, but you do need to have a, a political and cultural form that has public value in it. Mm. I keep on saying to Australian people, go to an Islamic country and visit their biggest mosque. Mm. What are you going to see? You're going to see major serious values on public display. Mm -hmm. We ought to do it too. Mm. And if we run down our churches and run down our temples and, and treat mosques as, as places where crazy people come together, uh, 
in the end, your culture will stand for nothing. Yeah. And the present problem in the US this week is not about Mr. Trump. It's about the erosion of American civilization. Mm. Those poor people rioting at the Capitol have very little American civilization. That's not their fault. Mm -hmm. Nobody gave it to them. Mm -hmm. You've got to create the educational vehicles to give it to them, the schools, the churches, the clubs. And you've got to make sure that that civilization has very high values and some high cultural content. It's not a snobby thing. It's not about saying we should all be able to uh, quote Emerson, but yeah. it is saying that everybody should be able to recognize a line from the Old and New Testament, and they should be able to quote at least one line from Shakespeare. And if they feel that's not their stuff, then you are not treating them as real citizens. Even just <clears throat> enough critical thinking to have an initially initial point of skepticism towards conspiracy theories Absolutely. would make a difference. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more with that. That's where I think the left-right discussion in Australia, as in the US, is bad because critical thinking isn't left or right. It's essential. And if the left talks rubbish, you must criticise them and say it's rubbish. Mm -hmm. And that's an argument for critical thinking, not for the left. Yeah. We need to have critical thinking. And it always exposes the errors of your opponents, but it also needs you to move on yourself because you realise something you were saying wasn't right. And that's a sign of, of real progress. Yeah. Yeah, of course yeah. it is. Well, a good critical thinker is going to be self-critical as well as yes. externally critical. And there's, there's not, you know, when there's a dearth of critical thinking, you, you lose the self-critical reflection. But in the US well. and in Australia, there is a problem of media, and this is not a party point or a left-right point, but you've got to have new media law. You've got to control the web. You've got to control digital media generally. And, the, and you've got to control TV and newspaper, not in the sense of a party, mm -hmm. but you've got to have national law that requires a level of truth. You can't have media putting out stuff that we all agree is untrue. And you mustn't allow a, a completely unbalanced presentation of a biased point of view. There should be a duty on all those engaged in media to reach a minimum level of truthfulness. There's plenty of room for argument about facts and figures and anything else. But also there ought to be a, a minimum level of disclosure about what different sides in an argument are saying. Mm -hmm. Because if you were forced to explain to ordinary Americans what, for example, <coughs> the race theorist is saying and what the anti-race theorist is saying in a proper way, public opinion would change. Yeah, yeah. So here's what I think is the million dollar question. This is how I wrap this all up into a kind of forward looking discussion. So we've got the rise or recrudescence of Chinese civilization on the one hand. And in some ways, I, for me, it's handling of the pandemic. Yes, it was kind of coercive and authoritarian, let's face it. But there are, there are, I think you would agree with me on this. Not a lot, but there are some virtues of an authoritarian regime, some things it can do at the administrative level very effectively that is very difficult for a democracy, and particularly a democracy like the US where individual liberty is the preeminent value. So we've got the rise of China, which it looks like it's coming out of this pandemic that it, that it um, bestowed on the world. Stronger. <laughs> Stronger. Yes. You've got a declining yes. civilization in America, a civilizational deficit, and really, in some ways, the the uh, the riotous seizure of the capital is, in some ways, the nadir. It seems to me, yes. like if anything exposes this um, degraded, decadent cultural deficit in the United States, to have such little value and respect for one of your key institutions, to have so little faith in in it, and so little trust that you would do that. So here's, here's the question is, looking forward, next 10, 20 years in this century, I guess it's a twofold question. This is, this is a bit tricky because I, I, I would hesitate to answer this myself as a former intelligence analyst. But do you think, what are the prospects of America finding its civilizational footing again? I mean, I don't think it can go back, but it needs to recapture some of its past values and virtues and then repackage them in a new way for the 21st century so can it recapture it and if it doesn't doesn't that kind of imply that we're looking at a chinese world or at least in the asia pacific to take it all the way back to australia our major civilizational ally has been in america and we fit within that civilizational paradigm that is conventionally known as the west so if our major ally the very nation that our entire national security is tied up in is in decline and possibly 
past the point of no return and we're looking at a more assertive China that we misunderstand and all these reasons, then given we are located in the Asia Pacific, I mean, what I'm asking you to sort of go into, I hate to use the word I, prediction, but let's do some forward. I think I'm not as pessimistic about the US as that, uh, either now or in the future. I think the immediate thing that's happening now is that there's a new world war going on. It's been going on for about four years since in space. In my view, the Americans will win the first phase of that war. Mm -hmm. They may not win the later phases. So the US is in a great deal of strain because it hasn't got a long time to fix things. It's got to fix them fairly quickly or it will go into some of these dire scenarios. But I think it has got the capacity to fix them because you do have the greatest country in the world, the greatest economy in the world. You do have a country where there are lots of areas of enlightenment that go deep down into American society. The problem in America is to renew the enlightenment forces in America. And the role of the churches is crucial there because the churches have not been entirely helpful. Mm -hmm. uh, and it's not been perhaps the fault of individual people, certainly not of people in local congregations. But there hasn't been a mature Christian response to Trump. There hasn't been a, a mature Christian analysis of how formal democracy led to various forms of oligarchy. The Christians, there have been Christian extremists saying these things, but ordinary Christian middle-level people have not said them. So one of the challenges is for the churches to really stand on their hind legs and say, this is what's gone wrong and we want to change it. That would be extremely important, I think, even though they're in decline in some ways. The degree of their influence in the United States is still very considerable, I think. I also think you could renew the founding of the Republic, because after all, this country begins with enormous hope. Mm -hmm. And it is a beacon on the hill in all kinds of ways. It's the Statue of Liberty point. Mm -hmm. Even the Chinese kids that were killed in Tiananmen Square knew what they were fighting for. Mm -hmm. So if America is clearer about what is great about it, which isn't Trump and isn't the things that Trump was trying to build, I think it could regain its world leadership quite easily and come out of the problem. The, pro the question is, you have to find a political vision that you can explain to the poorest person in America. You have to go all the way down. It's not a matter of a few professors having lunch. And if you can do that with a real vision, then I think America will rise. I think it will be successful in the struggle with China. And I think it may well dazzle us all with its achievements. The capacity of the United States to do the new thing is unequaled in the history of the world. Mm -hmm. But if the United States refuses to do the new thing and kind of canonizes procedures that we now know don't work, then it will be like the Romans. It will fall into collapse. Mm -hmm. Well, I, I like that optimism. That that took me by a, a little by surprise, Wayne. I mean, we well, if you we go have to, this kind of conversation. Well, I go, when I go to the US, of course, every year, and I've been yeah. going there also for a long, long time, and you see things, and yeah. I go all over the country, and after a while, you, you see all the faults, so you can give a, an anti-American rage, yeah, yeah. but you see the goodness at almost every level of yeah. American society. And that helps you, I think, get a better critique, because the criticism of America is that good America isn't prevailing. Yeah, yeah. And the number of people who'd accept that in the US would be very high. If you come through the virtues of the country. Do you think in, in part it's, it's an elite failure? That is, yes, on I the do. left and right. I do think that, yes. The, the elites on the left mm. and right just seem yes. completely idiotic these days. That's exactly and right, yes. And also it's the fact that they haven't got the right balance between political rights and economic freedoms. Now, being in favour of economic freedom is great. We're all in favour of economic freedom. You have to give it to every individual citizen. Mm. They stop doing that. So yeah. they have a strong notion of freedom when it comes to a company not being taxed yeah. and a weak one when it comes to an ordinary person yeah. having a right not to be put out of work for, the, for an unjust reason. Yeah. This is so I think economic freedom is the doctrine America needs, yeah. but it has to be given this all the way down, strongly democratic feature. And that fits in with basic Christianity because Christianity brought to the West for the very first time a notion of the citizenship of every single person. Yeah. And the Roman Empire was overthrown by the Christian vision. Yeah. That vision needs to be rebirthed in the mm -hmm. churches. I think you said something really interesting uh, before <clears throat> about, I think it was when you were talking about the, the legal system in the US and kind of legal theory has become so abstract that it's lost sight of what it is that the law is there for. That is, it does, it, it produces tangible out, uh, outcomes where they're resolving disputes for ordinary 
people. And I'm reminded of uh, something that, uh, you know, I'm a big fan of Christoph Sianderas and he's one of my friends, but he, he sort of observed in his book, The Inhumanity of Rights, that the problem with uh, abstract rights, and this I think is a central problem in America today, is that the owner of a media empire on paper has the same abstract right to free speech as a yes, homeless yes. person. Well, but of course, in practice, <coughs> yes. the homeless person has no free speech because <laughs> they're homeless. They're never going to be able to exercise their speech anywhere. Th- and this goes to your, I think, your yes. media point that in some ways it seems to me America has become so caught up on the rhetoric of yes. liberty, freedom and rights. It's lost sight well, of I, what Australia has retained yes. under a lot of pressure. Yes, I agree with that. Uh, of more sort of pragmatic outcomes and focusing more on the outcome. I think you could see a lot of this in Morrison's handling of COVID. I mean, clearly the the whole debt and deficit thing was not an ideological dogma of his because it disappeared as fast as the virus came. Why? Because I think he belongs to a tradition of Australian thought and not just conservative. I think this is a centre-right, centre-left because you saw it in Labor's um, market reforms in the 80s, which sort of... Go, go contra to everything you would think that the labor movement would stand for, which is they go for the pragmatic outcome <laughs> over ideology. Whereas in America, it seems to me, again, partly because of this failure of elites, it seems to me, who, who are sort of hyper-ideological and obsessed with ideas yeah. and theories and theoretical conflict, they've lost sight of the outcomes. And hence, you see the, the whole... This is how I think you can get the narrative of our healthcare is just... You know, our healthcare system is brilliant because it's an ideological uh, position that's tied into certain views about the free market and about the the, the way that the, the market should regulate regulate healthcare. And of course, their outcomes have been terrible yes. in Australia. And I know I'm simplifying here. Yes. We have a universal healthcare system that Americans with a straight face describe as communism. People yes. tell this to my, yes. <laughs> to yes. my parents. Yeah. And yet our health system, and I know there's more to that, and we've got some advantages because we're an island and small population, but uh, we have done pretty pretty well when it comes to COVID. I think we should come back to your, your last point because it's absolutely crucial. The United States has the ethical idealism that it needs. What it doesn't have at the moment is pragmatic, small-scale, down-to-earth reform at every level of the institutional life of the country. And what's happened is that a kind of rhetoric coming from Rome initially has dominated the Republic. What is needed is to get that rhetoric out, to get a real concern for change in, and to make sure that it works bottom up, that it's not about big grand plans, it's not about the government versus some small business person, it's about small scale change in every single household, which brings about real progress. And I think the United States could do that. A lot of the best critical legal thought of the last 20 years has come from the United States. It influenced Australia in this area as well. But the vision got lost by a kind of leftism that talks abstraction Mm -hmm. and that also wants the government to do everything. It's not about the government doing everything. It's about small-scale reform Mm -hmm. that empowers the smallest. It's the teaching of Jesus, essentially, Mm -hmm. that the smallest person has the rights. Mm -hmm. And those rights have to be real and not formal. Mm -hmm. American ordinary people have remarkably limited rights. Mm -hmm. I've talked at length to lots of very poor families. And they're shocked when they realise that in Australia they would have, you know, not only a good health system, but much more minimum wage. Everything is better for ordinary people in this country. They get a university degree for an affordable amount of money. Yes. And that's not about politics. It's about transforming the Christian vision into empowerment from below, Mm -hmm. making sure that those freedoms, particularly economic freedoms, Mm -hmm. apply to every citizen Mm -hmm. and not to a tiny elite. Mm -hmm. Uh, The figures from Britain are out this morning. You may have seen them in the press. I forget what they exactly are, but something like 2% of the population have something like 40% of the wealth, maybe 60% of the wealth. Mm -hmm. Again, this is clearly disastrous. Mm -hmm. Uh, The the latest figures suggest one in four British children are actually hungry. Now, this is a catastrophe Mm -hmm. in one of the greatest countries in the world. And it's the same same process. The, the economic freedom has not been realized at the level of the ordinary person. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. Hallelujah, just to pick up on your Jesus. <laughs> well, I think it's <laughs> the Christians Jesus. created the better societies out of the pagan societies, but we didn't continue the revolution. And we need to we need to go back to it again. No, and, and you know, kind of a, something that is quite perverse and paradoxical. Christians have become some of the loudest champions of 
the very things it seems to me that are well they're being threatened you. you have to realize these people are poor people these people feel threatened these people have limited access to true information and they are fearful that yeah. their America is being destroyed. Yeah. And I would blame the left as much as the right for that. Yeah. Because if you want real social progress, you don't threaten people. You don't feel that it will take away their moral dignity. Well, not only that, I think, the, I think the fear is not unfounded because, yes. and that, this is what I think the left gets catastrophically wrong with Trump. That is, they think he is this, um, sort of devilish demonic figure that has generated manipulated and whipped up fear but the fear was there he's it's exploiting a, something that is there and real and hollywood and big tech and the coastal elites who are sort of ramming down the critical race theory the transgender narrative and basically uh demonizing and denigrating <laughs> The vast majority of ordinary Americans, including many of the, the poor, including many um, migrants, including many blacks that tend to be more socially conservative, actually, than yes. your people in San, your white people in San Francisco course, and, and New York. And until the left reckons seriously with the America that has to, it has to take with it in its vision, and in my, in my view, it's never going to convince them, it actually has to pull back the vision would be a more sensible thing because I, I agree with you in this kind of political dialectic. Although I'm a conservative, I think you need a left. Jordan Peterson, well, of all people, makes this point yes. because you need... There are certain things different philosophical perspectives can see better than the other side. And as long as you're in conversation and you avoid the extremism, uh, then you have a better chance of resolving problems. And at the end of the day, the, the only... You know, you can't live in a society where everyone agrees, so you have of to course. deal with some kind of... Yes, of course. Uh, but also it's about empowerment. If, if you empower people at the bottom, mm -hmm. you will stop a lot of these problems. Mm -hmm. And why are these people feeling threatened? Because they are threatened. Mm -hmm. It's a reality in their lives. Yeah. They, their, their economic welfare was taken away by Clinton and by mm -hmm. bad policies on the democratic side. Right. Their cultural power is being eroded by people who are criticizing them. Uh, they are, the churches have not provided them with any real empowerment. In many ways have yeah. let them down and uh, provided a sort of pseudo salvation around ideological because notions. so many so much of american christianity it seems to me is spiritually, is spiritually bankrupt so absolutely they, yes the absolutely. kind of spiritual salve yes. they offer does nothing that's <laughs> absolutely true i mean we do need a massive christian reform in america and part of the reform is towards spirit putting spirituality at the center again and that will unite left and right mm -hmm. if you do it in the right mm -hmm. way yeah so all over the world one of the things that's amazing is that if you get really good spirituality right-wing people like it because they can see it's what they're always on about mm -hmm. and didn't know it mm -hmm. and then the left-wing people can see it's what they lacked mm -hmm. it's yeah. very healing and it yeah. also is compatible with notional disagreement there's no problem about multiple opinions like like multiculturalism we've learned in Australia there's no problem with multiculturalism it works perfectly well providing we're all agreed about civil values mm -hmm. in the same way in spiritual things if the spirituality is there people can have all a great diversity of intellectual standpoints and be perfectly harmonious. Yeah, we can disagree on soteriology. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Doctrine of creation yeah. or what have you. Uh, Wayne, just before you finish, I do feel like this was supposed to be a review of um, 2020. And I started off with China and we swiftly moved <laughs> to America. But it left out the rest of the world. Well, 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 well you know, the rest of the world doesn't really matter in this, this context. But I, I feel like it would be... A strange review of 2020 if we didn't just circle back to the thing we've mentioned along the way which is the pandemic i think the biggest the most significant impact of the pandemic is that it has if anything propelled china's civilizational prestige to put it in your your term which i'm borrowing from you gratefully and it has exacerbated or perhaps revealed just how dire <laughs> the situation is in america is and it's certainly compounded aggravated exacerbated the socio-political problems in the US. Um, is there any other long-term consequence from this extraordinary thing? Or is it just going to become like the Spanish flu in 1918, something that subsequent generations don't care about and know nothing about? Because who was talking about the Spanish flu for 100 years until the next well, pandemic? I don't think you can, we can't go the latter way because there are going to be more pandemics. We're not at the end of this. This is not the last thing to come out of Wuhan. And so we're discovering that we haven't 
solve the medical crisis problem. Mm -hmm. And that's again because at a global level we've made the same mistakes we're talking about in the US. We've allowed massive poverty all over Africa. We've got jihad in a whole lot of French African states. We're not managing the world well either in the same way that we're not empowering people at the bottom economically or in any other way. And then so all do, kinds so of do you think the pandemic has exposed not just civilization I think or the pandemic has in America but but a weakness in the global order perhaps. I think that's true but I think it has two other big results. I think it does make it unavoidable that we rethink the nature of government and accept a greater role of a strong central government. I think federalism has caused great harm in America, hasn't caused any harm here, but then here we formed a national cabinet and, the, and they worked together. And so, here, but here, I, here we're, for, we're, we're, yeah. Well. But, but the point, well, to some extent, but, but the really important point is that, yes, there will be more more strong government in the future, regardless of ideology or state. And that's an effect of the pandemic. Mm -hmm. But the other effect, and this I think is extremely important and hasn't been discussed in the world media at all, is that we are now accepting the final victory, I think, of monotheistic science. That science is in every country in the world determining in the end what you're going to do. Mm -hmm. Sweden's reversing this week, as you saw. So the power of science and the democratic power of science will now be enormous. That, and that's going to cause... Because that, that's a really... It's really interesting to hear you say that because this, is, as I know you will know, because you've got your antennae in all the sort of different parts of the socio-political world, but this this uh, scepticism, distrust, growing scepticism and distrust, particularly on the right about science, has been um, really remarkable for me and somewhat surprising. I kind of knew it was there around the whole climate change thing, but it seemed like it was a kind of fringe fringe fetish if you like the people kind of trying to overturn the the overwhelming consensus on the climate change science but throughout this pandemic i've seen lots and lots of people mainly on the right i don't know about the left maybe it's it's there in some way on the left too but on the right not just a questioning of the science but a resentment that we're being run by scientists and this because kind of narrative that that it's just technocrats that are running well, because it's a transfer of power from them yeah they previously had the hegemony and were making the social decisions. Now they're losing it to an expert elite. So mm. they're complaining about the transfer of power away from them. But the, but the real deep transfer isn't to the scientific elite, mm -hmm. it's to the science. Oh, okay. I think it is a democratic transformation. So you're not talking so much about the scientists, but no. the, the fact that, I think that scientific knowledge yes, and the scientific method I think, that, method I think in all countries, everybody's realising you have to study it, you have to know what it says, and if you ignore it, you're going to... Not only pandemic, the, you know, the climate change will be the same, the bushfires come, and so on and so on. And I think that it's a double problem because... I think that all modern sciences need to be re-mythologized. I think we made a mistake with Galileo. Mm -hmm. I think that all modern science has metaphysical problems. Mm -hmm. But having said that, I don't deny, of course, that it's been the greatest transformation the world could possibly have mm -hmm. had. So I'm very pro-science and very pro the social power of science. But the next and more tricky bit is how to now correct and relocate the science. Mm -hmm. Because just as we created this pseudo-economics and then didn't embed it in real societies and real families mm -hmm. and real industries, so we've created a science that isn't thoroughly embedded. So I want to see a revolution in how we understand the sciences. But I think that the democratic power of what I call monotheistic science will be greater now. Mm -hmm. And that will put great pressure on churches in all kinds of areas. And at the moment, they show no sign of responding. They simply don't know what to say. Could you just explain briefly the why you characterize this with the term monotheistic ah, science? Well because, well, because when the Galilean revolution goes through, two things happen that we must understand and people don't understand clearly. One is we dropped a sensible theory of causation, Aristotle, mm -hmm. and we adopted efficient causality. So the, we only paid attention to one sort of causality mm -hmm. after that. Mm -hmm. It's now changing again in biology where Aristotle's coming back. Now, my speech is not a pro-Aristotle speech, but it's, a, it's pro a sophisticated theory of causation. Yeah. We went to a crude one. The second point is that we adopted a monotheistic science. What does that mean? It means that we assumed that we could have the vision 
that God would ah, have God. if he was there. So our science talks as though reality's there, it's got a certain character, and science discovers it. Mm-hmm. That all presumes a form of monotheism. Mm-hmm. Now, some Christians, of course, think this is really good, so science really shows the truth of monotheism. But I take the more traditional view that monotheism is false. Christians can't be monotheists and weren't ever monotheists, except by error. Mm-hmm. And that, therefore, in the same way, our science needs to be rethought so that it's the science of creatures, so that it reflects our entanglement in the universe, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. not an idolatrous promotion of us to God. Yeah. <clears throat> well, uh, <laughs> but that, uh, <laughs> but that will no doubt uh, open all kinds of questions for some of our listeners. But we have done an hour, and and I am taking you into more theological terrain. And as I discussed with you prior to putting putting this to do, I before doing this uh, podcast. I want to reserve that for another podcast because um, we, we are going to attempt to write a book together on political theology in the coming months. And so let's let's leave your incredibly interesting <laughs> and stimulating and unorthodox uh, views on Christianity and theology, perhaps for another podcast, because I think it is worth doing that mm-hmm. Um in another one so we'll, we'll just leave your critique of monotheism as it pertains to theology there and leave that that i think that's a, a fitting place to end with your point about science in a characteristically nuanced and sophisticated way so uh, wayne hudson uh, thanks for providing us with your wonderful and inimitable inimitable yes that's what i'm trying to say um intellect uh i trust and i'm sure our audience found it incredibly stimulating and engaging thank you very much and i'll see you in the office you will tomorrow you will thank you jonathan